In the 20 days since we recorded our podcast on the novel coronavirus, a lot has changed. One change is the sickness caused by the virus is now referred to as COVID-19. We are now up to 80,000 confirmed cases and close to 3,000 deaths globally. And the virus has spread beyond China to many other countries with new outbreaks in countries such as Iran and Italy. As of today, with the first infection reported in Brazil, the coronavirus has spread to every continent except Antarctica. Here in the US, there are over 50 confirmed cases, many of them from the Diamond Princess cruise ship. The CDC yesterday released a statement saying that we should prepare for a coronavirus crisis in the United States. With an official stating, quote, it's not so much a question of if this will happen anymore, but rather more of a question of when. Worries about the coronavirus have led to a stock market slide with the Dow Jones down more than 1,900 points in just two days. Clearly, the initial concerns about this virus have only heightened in less than a month. Therefore, we have decided to record this update podcast to address new information that has been learned about COVID-19, how the virus is spreading compared to earlier predictions, and what we should expect and how we should prepare in the United States. I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. And once again, for this podcast, I am joined by Justin Lessler from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, as well as Michael Mina from the Harper T.H. Chan School of Public Health. So let's jump right into it. So Justin, I just said a little bit about the statistics, but can you give us your impression of how things have changed in the last 20 or so days and how it compares to your earlier predictions of how this would spread? So I think the biggest difference is that uh, 20 days ago, you uh, would have talked about this as mostly a China problem. I mean, we were thinking, we were definitely thinking that, okay, this is gonna spread widely and we widely or most likely would not be contained, though we thought there was still an opportunity then. And I, but now there's no question, we were right. It could not be contained. It has spread widely and um, is all over the world at this point. Um, and it seems like in at least a few countries that all over the world doesn't just mean small introductions, it means active transmission going on. So I, I think, you know, to, to jump right into it, you know, the pandemic word, it's a pandemic. Uh, I think we should talk a little bit about what that means. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that it's going to be 1918 flu and 20 to 100 million people are going to die. It means that the disease is in all is all over the world and has spread to multiple continents. And you know, HIV is a pandemic. The 2009 H1N1 uh, flu outbreak was a pandemic, and those have had you know very different impacts on health. So, it's saying it's pandemic doesn't mean it says, says nothing about how big of an of effect it will have on health. It just has, says something about how it will get everywhere and how it's gotten everywhere in the world. And at this point, it has. Right. Gotcha. Michael, do you want to speak uh, to your take on um, how things have changed? Uh, I think the, the, the major ways that I've seen changes, it, I mean, it's really very much in line with what Justin was just saying the the I think it's become increasingly clear just how widely this is likely to spread. Um, 
it's become increasingly clear, I think, that, that um, even if we can do really exceptional contact tracing um, and we can put all of these efforts into uh, trying to discover the outbreak early on, um, it's still unlikely that we'll be able to contain it. We can mm -hmm. probably learn a lot epidemiologically from those efforts, but I don't know that containing is necessarily what we should be aiming for. And, and really it's what's become more clear to me is that our, our efforts should be aimed at slowing down and sort of stretching out the epidemic curve rather than having it all occur very quickly. Right, and yeah. mitigating the and mitigating its impact when it does get yeah, in place. Exactly. Right. It's exactly. it's contain yeah. it's it's slowing in mitigation. Yeah, and right. I, I do think uh, you know, one flip one thing that did surprise me is I was surprised uh, about how effective the you know the social distancing and containment efforts in China were locally. Mm -hmm. Like clearly the epidemic is declining in Hubei and for that reason seems to be uh, declining elsewhere in China since it's driven from uh, exports there. Whether that outcome was worth the cost and whether you know, the containment has had uh, downstream negative effects is a different question, mm -hmm. but it is clear that we can, you know, while you know, stopping it is not necessarily possible through social distancing we can definitely take local epidemics and slow them down and potentially um and, and potentially minimize how big they get gotcha so can you talk a little bit about what the um what is the state of the art right now in terms of so if someone shows up in the united states they test positive for corona this coronavirus what what is the quarantine uh you know, procedure, how long should they be quarantined? How does the social distancing work? Can you talk a little bit about that? So um, without going into too much detail, um, so first of all, if somebody shows up in the United States, which was the example, it's unlikely yeah. that at the moment they will be tested. <laughs> and, okay, and that's, that's sort of a different <laughs> question. Um, and something from a diagnostic perspective is absolutely worth um, discussing either here or elsewhere. But, um, Testing capacity is still very limited here, mm -hmm. uh, but should somebody come in and and be discovered to be positive, essentially the it's uh, it's um, there will be or there will be efforts to quarantine them for at least two weeks. Some people and some evidence is really suggesting that even more than two weeks might be required mm -hmm. to really be sure that somebody's no longer um, able to spread the the uh, virus. Um, and then ev eventually they can kind of go back to, they're assuming that they get over it just fine, just like we would the flu or any other virus, then they can go back to, to normal life. Mm -hmm. um, but there isn't really a protocol right now for the United States as a whole to know what to do with this, um, with people who turn up positive. And in a way it's going to be state by state, county by county, or even hospital by hospital mm -hmm. in terms of determining what exactly should we be doing with um, positive patients? Right. And that's somewhere where I think the U.S. is sort of lagging a bit in terms of uh, even clarity on our preparedness. Gotcha. Right, and and I think it's it's important to uh, think about like what the goals are, and particularly in this in this uh, phase when maybe we're moving beyond containment to slowing it down. So. Uh, you know, to, to make a distinction, right, uh, isolation is what you do to patients who are already sick and quarantine is to do is what 
you do to people who've been exposed and right. are not sick, right? Gotcha. Uh, a lot of those people who are get exposed and are not sick are going to be healthcare workers. And if we go with 14 days, which may or may not be enough uh, for a lot of healthcare workers at a time when the hospitals are being stressed, you know, is that going to have a larger downstream negative effect by taking those healthcare workers out of circulation, you know, compared to the uh, potential positive of stopping transmission of a disease that could already be widespread in the community. I see. So and how does, uh, go ahead. So there's, um, yeah, so, and then even, um, I think another thing which is a little bit, uh, it's somewhat more nuanced, but really not, is one of the, the, the biggest issues that we're really thinking about with, from a population health and where, the, where public health and epidemiology really intersect with the hospital system and healthcare is, how are we actually diagnosing this and, and what does it mean right now if we have a multiple day delay because all samples have to be processed at the CDC or a couple of state labs, more or less. Um, you know, what, is, what does that potentially do to bed flow? So it's, it's actually not even necessarily all the positive patients, but we're really concerned also about just the, the way that we deal um, in the healthcare setting with patients who are waiting to be, um, to be diagnosed either as positive or negative. Mm -hmm. And if there's a very long delay, then we need to keep things in mind, like bed flow in a hospital and how are people kind of moving through the hospital and, and ensuring that we can maintain proper functioning of the hospital um, processes. If we have a lot of individuals, for example, waiting to get a test and sort of being kept in quarantine uh, because they're still waiting for their test, do we put them all in one room? And, and if there is one infected, then they can spread it to the others, or do we have to give them each individual rooms? Yikes. And that could very quickly become untenable for almost all hospitals. Right, and, and this gets to, I think, the, uh, what we said last time that I think is still uh, what I believe, I assume it's still what Michael believes, is that you know, this is likely to have relatively low personal risk, particularly for younger, healthier people, but it's gonna be really hard for the hospitals. It's gonna be hard to figure out how to manage patients, how to stop transmission. But also when you look at the, how long people are sick, you know, it's taking people a month or more to die, who die eventually, and people who recover are also in the hospital for quite a long time. Um, so that is gonna be one of the huge challenges about this is how do we manage potentially a lot of sick people showing up very close to each other and how do we continue to provide services for all the other people um, who are sick like I saw an article in the news the other day about how women in China pregnant women in China were frustrated mm -hmm. by their inability to get care during the outbreak so we're it's completely possible that in many places in the United States and throughout the world we have we have similar experiences as the spreads well, yeah. Yeah, I think what I think what you're hearing from us is that, um, uh, in some ways, the risk of this virus is not the virus itself. It's the ramifications, the social and healthcare ramifications, and even trade ramifications. You know, to 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 society, I think can be potentially more destructive than the virus. Yeah, if that, we don't that, deal with it well. Yeah. That being said, if you're a, a 70 year old person with any <laughs> yeah. heart conditions, you probably should be extremely, extremely careful over the coming months. Yeah, <laughs> right. Absolutely. Very good points. 
Um, yeah, I think that you guys make some fantastic points that re really need to be emphasized that this is more than just the illness we're worried about. We're worried about the societal implications of dealing um, with this infection being pandemic. Um, that being said, I think that you know people are very interested in the actual illness, and I think that there's a lot of misinformation, let's say, or or fear mongering about you know what this pandemic uh, infection actually means in terms of if you actually get sick. Uh, we talked a little bit, you know, on, on our last podcast about how infectious it is, how deadly it is, but you know, we were still figuring it out back then. I think we have a little bit more information now. So. Um, a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. Okay, that's an interesting point. But but it seems to me, and, and I'm going to say this, and then I want one of you to critique it or, or correct it. It seems to me that the issue here is that it's highly infectious, um, but, the, uh, but maybe not that deadly. So, you know, we're, when we're talking about it spreading around the globe, it seems to, to really be spreading, and, um, but it's not actually killing that many people compared to how many people are infected with it. So is right. that a I true mean, statement? <clears throat> I think it is adequately infectious. It, it definitely is able to spread. I, you know, when I think highly infectious, I think measles or something like right, that. Right, right. Good it point. Is like but everything really like turbocharged, right? right? But it's, it's you know, it's in there with the flu and other diseases that are, are major problems. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's, the evidence now is it's not like super, super, super deadly, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, we're not looking at 10% or, you know, 30% um, mortality rates mm -hmm. among, among people who get infected. Uh, though I would stress there is still some uncertainty because what I said earlier, people take a long time to die. There may be deaths we haven't seen yet that are going to change our thinking. Mm -hmm. But I think the best money is on per infection that you have something under 1% mm -hmm. of those people dying and hopefully quite a bit under. But let's right. just say it's 1%. That is not a small number or let's even sure. say it's one in a thousand that is not a small number that's many many times more deadly than the annual flu if you start multiplying that out by seven billion people in the world potentially half of which or more could be infected um you know yeah. that is millions and millions of people dying hopefully it's not that bad so but i would caution that you know it gets to this personal risk versus overall risk thing. Yeah. Like I would caution that, you know, it can be like, I can look at you, I can look you in the eye, Brian, and say, you are almost certainly not going to die of this disease. <laughs> Thanks. But that doesn't mean it's not going to be the worst, you know, the highest cause of mortality in a long time. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. In the United States, mm -hmm. uh, if it circulates widely. Gotcha. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, the public health perspective of it. It definitely. Um, I think you know it, it's it's hard to uh, communicate the the. Uh, you want to be prepared for this, but you don't want to panic people, and that's what we're trying to do. So. Hopefully, if you're listening to this, you're understanding that, you know, we do need to mobilize, we do need to prepare, but your personal risk of dying from this, it's not like in the movies and contagion or pandemic, you know, where the Ebola virus is, is 
going around killing people in less than an hour after getting infected. So, uh, you know, we just want to have some realism in this podcast and, and help you understand a little bit better about what we're talking about when we're saying this is pandemic. Um, so that being said, so you talked a little bit about the elderly being a little bit more um, vulnerable to this. I know that a lot of infectious diseases affect the elderly and children the most, but it seems to me that children seem to be not quite as vulnerable to this one, and it's mostly the elderly. Uh, and also, I've read something that men are um, more vulnerable to this than women. So it it does seem, I mean, certainly the this is a, has been very unique in that children... Um, are really not showing up as particularly, even the, the low numbers that are showing up as sick are really not severe. They, there's been almost no deaths in, in little and young children. Mm -hmm. And so it's still a big question why. It really doesn't fit the normal U-shaped curve that we're used to seeing for a lot of infectious diseases. And, uh, and we still don't know, is it something based on whether or not the virus can infect those kids? Uh, or not, or whether it's some immunological cross-reactive sort of responses that are protecting the young children. Um, I think there's a lot of questions to be unearthed uh, and, and answered surrounding that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is like most of our data comes from China that has a little bit of a funny population structure and has uh, healthy kids. Just good point. I mean, and fewer kids than and if, if fewer kids and, and healthy kids. So I, I think a big question, and I'd be interested in Michael's perspective on this: is this uh, something that is is what's causing elderly people to die? Something that is unique to being elderly um, or older, and like like a previous exposure to a previous virus or you know particular types of cardiovascular problems and stuff in which case it's the countries with older people that that are going to see the worst of it regardless of underlying health or is it that the older people in china were in wuhan where most of the deaths have come from were just the people who were frail and if that's the case then in places where we have a lot of people with a lot of frailty and underlying conditions that are in populations that aren't older, like certain places in sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, uh, are we going to, see, you know, where there's malnutrition, uh, are we going to see high, um, high death rates there? I, my personal intuition is it's more likely to former at this point, but I don't know. I'd be interested in getting Michael's uh, take on that actually. Yeah, so I, I've been surprised that there's been relatively little discussion um, about mechanism in the in the sense that the virus. So my personal hypothesis, I think, and without having a lot of good data to back it up, is this may result from the receptor that this virus is using. So it's using a, a very famous receptor called ACE2, right? Which is really part of this very famous pathway that we try to. Um, that we try to target therapeutically mm -hmm. using ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers for hypertension and cardiovascular disease. And this is, these, are, this is, these are drugs that we give to millions and millions and millions of people on earth every day. And, um, and they help ward off uh, cardiovascular problems. And so the fact that this virus actually binds to one of the, the really upstream uh, receptors or, or proteins in this pathway means it, it leads to a derangement in the pathway downstream, which could be resulting in the, in the odd um, susceptibilities, particularly in elderly that we're seeing. These are individuals who might be less um, 
less able or less tolerant to um, shifts in their cardiovascular system, right. especially when you add it on top of a, a burgeoning viral infection. Um, and we actually saw some of the earlier, um, some of the earliest deaths we saw were actually cardiovascular and mm -hmm. cardiac arrest. Um, right. So, uh, and children, on the other hand, have really a pretty robust ability to tolerate pretty, pretty severe changes in their cardiovascular system. They can, their blood pressure go up and down and and they actually are very robust. Um, you know, kids are kind of like rubber plastic. So gotcha. um, and so I, I do wonder if that has to do with it. Right. So you, you mentioned a little bit about that on the last uh, podcast, but I, I meant to ask you, is that, so is that different than other coronaviruses such as the common cold? So is that targeting a different receptor? Yeah, the other coronaviruses, um, well, SARS, which also had a similar age pattern, um, was uh, also targeting the same ACE2 uh, receptor and then um, coronavirus NL sixty three also does, mm -hmm. um, but the other three seasonal viruses do. Oh, not. Good old coronavirus NL sixty three. That's when it. Uh, that's when it causes the common cold. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So, so right. that um, you know, and so, uh, but whether or not it does as much damage, or you know, we don't see the same kinds of symptoms with with it. So it's it's hard to say, but. The fact that it also binds to ACE2 and infects plenty of children suggests mm -hmm. to me that it's not, that the reason that this is infecting adults so much more isn't because children don't have this receptor at high concentrations. Right. I think it's downstream effects. Gotcha. Okay, great. This is uh, very helpful information, I think, in terms of uh, how, this, how this virus may be affecting us. Um, that all being said, we, we talked a little bit about this before, well, actually, we talked a lot about it in the last podcast how we, as the average citizen, can be prepared. Um, you know, but we were talking about it with in a context of, you know, I think there were just a handful of cases in the United States at the at the time. Now we know that this is pandemic. Now we know that this is a question of when, not if, this is going to spread widely through the United States. So that being said, we keep talking about being prepared. So how how can we individually? Um, be prepared for this virus. And again, you guys talked about preparedness doesn't just mean being prepared for being sick or how to not be sick. It also means being prepared for what's going to happen societally when this, this is pandemic in terms of school closings, et cetera. So um, could you talk, could you tell us a little bit about what you, how you would suggest uh, we prepare individually for this pandemic? Yeah, uh, I, well, two things in that. Uh, one is I think that will, um, that it's, it's important. It's, it's saying it's everybody should be prepared. I think when we're starting to talk about mitigation and like widespread pandemic response, like that stops being something the government does or public health agencies do or hospitals do. I mean, they, they all have important roles, but it's really something we all do mm -hmm. together. Uh, so I'd emphasize that. And there's a great resource that hopefully we can like post a link to in this that was on uh, Ian McKay's uh, Vi Virology Down Under blog uh, that was a bit written by professional risk communicators hmm. on how to think about this and how to prepare. And so, I, so I'm happy to talk now, but I would also like point there that, you know, people who think about how best to Think, talk about these things, talk about it too. Yeah, we'll definitely um, post links to all the things you guys mentioned here. So yeah, yeah. keep them but, coming. But uh, certainly start, you know, definitely I think one thing we need to prepare is start thinking about not making other people sick or getting sick ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's time to start using that hand sanitizer. Uh, maybe we can 
it's time to start considering instead of shaking hands doing the old uh, Ebola uh, elbow bump that they would do in uh, Liberia during the uh, during that um, during the Ebola epidemic. Uh, I think you know it's time to start thinking about do I have my meds and everything up to date? You know, do I, do am I in a position that I'm not going to have to go to an overwhelmed doctor or an overwhelmed hospital? Uh, and try to get some essential care that I could have avoided having to get. Mm -hmm. You know, th those I think for me, those are the top things, and those are the things that, like, you know, I'm telling my mother mm -hmm. and you know other people in my life who I think are at a particularly high risk of a bad outcome to be thinking about. Right. Yeah, and um, I mean. Uh, Along those lines, certainly looking towards the future, a lot of questions come in around: um, Should we be traveling? You know, what mm -hmm. should we what should we do with our plans for vacations coming up? And um, and I think yes. these are going to be you know they're on the one hand they're they're first world problems to have I guess you know should I go on vacation? But they're really important and crucial problems to to think about now. Um, and I think a lot of people are having questions, and and time will tell just how crucial it will be to sort of limit travel and things like that but but there are some things that that like anytime you go into really densely populated areas in the middle of a, a potential epidemic you know does increase risk so I think if there's the possibility without you know to to reduce sort of unnecessary travel that's mm -hmm. just for vacations and things like that like in the next couple of months or even weeks we might see that that ends up becoming an important way to to start mitigating spread as well, especially if somebody who's very vulnerable, like somebody in their late 70s or 80s, yeah. they might really want to take those things seriously. Yeah, right. and, and I mean, we need to, it's, it's time, you know, we always have this tendency to treat health advice doesn't like it doesn't uh, apply to us, <coughs> excuse me, particularly as I cough, um, <laughs> particularly when it comes to your elbow, to, Justin, my elbow. <laughs> particularly, <laughs> Particularly when it comes to like not going to work when we're sick and stuff like that, right? You know, it's always like we're always very happy to tell other people when they have a cough not to go to work. But, you know, we have a fever of 101 and pop, pop a few Tylenol and like drag ourselves in. Uh, so I think it, I think I would think it's time to up our seriousness about practicing. Well, for those of the public health community, practicing what we preach, but also everybody you know, do that, you know, home isolation, you know, you got a cold, like we have, we're using some now, we have great video conferencing software now and stuff like that. Like you can probably get by without going into work. Yeah, so, so let's start taking in some of that like personal responsibility. Yeah. Uh, before we leave the travel recommendation um, portion though, I, I wanted to bring up Justin, we were, we were, chatting very briefly before we started recording about this and um, you had a good point about uh, it may not be the risk to infection that you get from traveling but rather the risk to what happens you know the government response while you're over there to the uh, outbreak that you may you may end up getting um, trapped let's say or or not able to leave the country so so things like that that you have to consider other than just are you going to get sick yeah like, I, I mean, I, I think I don't want to like overplay that too much, but I think you should be aware, you need to be a little more aware about 
what's going on in the countries you're going to and how they're responding. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, most people, if they're traveling to Europe or, you know, some more industrialized place, don't think twice about like checking the sea, you know, checking the state department site Mm -hmm. and see what's going on or anything like that. Um, Whereas those of us who, uh, you know, travel to places where there's a little more instability and stuff like that, um, you know, sort of have to make that a habit. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you need to be a little bit aware if something's changed or if something's going on. And I think taking more of that approach more broadly, because countries are going to respond differently. If right. if it does start, for instance, circulating widely in the um, U.S., uh, but you know, not say in Venezuela. Right, that's probably a bad example. Not a lot of people are traveling <laughs> in Venezuela. <laughs> country X, let's say. Con- country X, Australia. How about Australia? Uh, you know, you might. The Australian government may decide that you know travelers from the U.S. need to be quarantined when right. they get off the plane, and you right. should sort of have a. You need that. You need to know that. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, hopefully it doesn't, hopefully there's nothing worse to ever worry about than that. But, um, you know, as people, as people can say, as people know, like as people can say from the past, humans didn't always respond to infectious disease threats in the most rational manner. Right, right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've been reading sources saying um, it, more domestically in terms of what to be prepared for, you know, like I mentioned school closings, um, you know, large gatherings like concerts may start being canceled, um, you know, public transportation, you know, things like that, that you have to, you have to be aware that there may be some disruption to our daily lives that comes from if this starts spreading very widely in the United States. So that doesn't mean panic. It just means have, um, you know, be prepared for it. Uh, you know, have backup plans available. If the kids have to stay home from school, you know, have a plan. Um, so, yeah, okay. So I think we've covered uh, some very important points about individual preparedness, but maybe you guys can sp- speak briefly about, um, you know, what, what the U.S. official or public health officials need to do to prepare for this coming pandemic? And what can we do better? What have we learned from the response so far? What can we take away from it? What can we do better going forward? Well, one one piece on the more boots on the ground side of things is is how we're we're sort of physically preparing and getting public health labs. So one of the core pieces of being able to monitor the epidemic and actually perform proper public health um, measures is to really know if the uh, if the uh, virus is spreading and um, and of course what's been in the news a lot lately has been the the sort of test kits that the CDC sent out to all of the state labs had to be retracted because they didn't work very well mm. and interestingly they they still haven't been really gotten up and running and, and the US still has very limited capacity to test but I do think that that's one of the major pieces that uh, needs to happen for public health to move forward properly. We have to be able to test for the virus, uh, either in, from a public health perspective, that can be either in the form of testing uh, sick people or their contacts for the virus, or potentially shortly thereafter looking for antibodies and doing serological testing to try to understand how quickly the virus is spreading um, with a lag of a few weeks in that case. Um, 
and uh, but but testing is really one of the basic things, and and I think that we can get um, we should be striving to get um, public health laboratories sort of set up to really be able to perform this at a at sort of a, a rapid pace to keep up with um, the pace the virus might spread. Um, and then also from a hospital, more practical perspective, what we were kind of discussing earlier is, um, is hospitals should be prepared for everything from really, I think there needs to be some really serious discussion about how well prepared are our, our nurses and hospital staff and physicians uh, for, for, um, taking, for using personal protective equipment. One of the worst things that can happen in the middle of a of a large outbreak is for the, the healthcare workers themselves to be out of commission. And like it or not, most, if you walk around a lot of hospitals, oftentimes the infectious disease precautions are sort of, um, they're sort of treated in a somewhat joking manner. People kind of throw on the, um, the personal protective equipment and, uh, you know, in a haphazard way because they're busy going room to room and, and, uh, and don't really use it as appropriate as they could. And so I think that, you know, really having hospital systems and healthcare systems ensure that all the staff and all the members are really taking seriously how to keep everyone safe is, is incredibly important. Right. Very good point. Justin? Yeah, I mean, I'll second everything uh, Michael just said. I think, you know, thinking about <clears throat> so thinking about the response, uh, like from a public health standpoint, uh, more broadly outside of hospitals, I think it's it's important to you know I think maybe there's been a focus on China and that needs to stop quickly mm -hmm. because you know ultimately. Um, Excuse me. You know, ultimately, the disease is sort of everywhere now, and you know, focusing on it coming through China is a way to you know miss what's going on, and mm -hmm. and the preparation and the and stuff might need to needs to focus more on what we're going to do when this disease is widespread in the community. What is our plan for school closure? Mm -hmm. What are, you know, what are we going, what's our attitude going to be about mass events? Mm -hmm. You know, is that going to be up to the organizer? Or are we going to, you know, disallow it? Um, you know, so how do we, how are we going to deal with those things if we have an outbreak in our community? But the biggest thing is, is coming back to what Michael said, is to do all those things, we need to know when an outbreak is happening in our community. Mm -hmm. So we need some testing. We need, to, we need some testing to be able to do that and then have a plan about what we're going to do and what our goals are in doing it. Are we trying to, you know, it, it, are we trying to stop spread altogether? Is that our goal? Um, it's not clear that that's a great one, right? Or are we trying to just mitigate it and slow it down? Um, you know, what we want to avoid is coming back to a point you made earlier. What we want to avoid is having responses so extreme that the response is worse than the disease itself. Mm -hmm while at the same time doing everything possible to uh, mitigate the uh, overall health impact of the disease um, you know, for the population. Thank you. All right, well, I think that's a good place to stop. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us about um, this very important and timely topic. Um, once again, 
If you're an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. SCR membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is in Boston this year in June. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening, and we'll be back with another episode on another topic soon.